Woe to you, you hypocrites. What sorrow awaits you? For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers. Good morning, my name is Zach. (laughs) I am the lead pastor here at Restore. Does anyone know who said that? Jesus. Jesus seems kind of off-brand, right, for Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be the 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 turn-the-other-cheek guy, the love-your-enemies guy, right? And he was, he is. But Jesus also got mad. Jesus was even harsh sometimes, not often, but enough to make us sit up and take notice. Jesus raised his voice. Jesus flipped some tables. Jesus even chased people out of the temple with a whip one time. But the point isn't that Jesus got mad. The point is what Jesus got mad about. What made God in the flesh, Emmanuel that we just sang about, what made God in the flesh mad? What made the author and perfecter of our faith get upset? What made the creator and sustainer of the universe get angry? I'm going to get more specific with answers to those questions in just a moment, but for now it's easiest to say that sin is what made Jesus mad. Now, not the sins you probably heard a lot about if you grew up in certain kinds of church, things like missing your quiet time or listening to secular music or being a little bit different maybe than the the in crowd. In fact, I think Jesus had a radically different understanding of sin than the one many of us have been given. A few weeks ago, we kicked off a teaching series called Fractured, What Sin Breaks, Jesus Restores. So what is sin? Just as a quick review. We explored this question in depth during the opening message in this series by looking at a concept called shalom. Now, shalom is this ancient Hebrew word that often gets translated as peace, but it's so much more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is abundant goodness and flourishing in all things and between all things. Abundant goodness in God, in humanity, in creation, as well as abundant goodness in between God and humanity, in between humanity and itself, in between us and creation, God and creation, in all things and between all things. You see, God created this world and everything in it for the purpose of shalom, abundant goodness and flourishing. So if God's desire for us is shalom, then sin can be easily defined as anything that gets in the way of shalom. That's what sin is. This can be things we do to ourselves, things that we do to other people, things that other people do to us, or things caused by sinful systems and structures in our world. Whatever the manifestation, the truth is that sin vandalizes Shalom. Sin gets in the way. And this is why we get freed up to say things like, God hates sin. Not because God is some legalist holding every human to an impossible moral standard, or because God flies off the handle in anger anytime we do something wrong. You see, God hates sin because sin hurts us. 
And God loves us so much. God loves you so much that when you are being hurt by something, whether it's self-inflicted or others-inflicted, God gets upset because he wants to see you in abundant goodness, in flourishing, in hope, in grace, in love. So with that as our foundation, I want to use these final two weeks of the series to talk about how we fight against this kind of sin, both personally and systemically. So today is personally, and then next Sunday we will talk about how we fight against this systemic sin. Now it would be easy today to focus on how we've been personally sinned against. In fact, I've talked about that a lot of times. It's a very valid thing. We will address it more at other points, but today I really want to focus on how we fight against our own sin. It's going to be intimate. It's going to be challenging, but I'm going to, I believe it's, it's going to be really worth it, okay? So hang with me. Because we want to be people that look like Jesus, right? That's what a Christian is. Little Christ, that's what the word means. We want to be little representations of Jesus everywhere that we go. And as we've already seen, sin makes Jesus mad. So it should make us mad too. And again, this is not because Jesus is legalistic or moralistic or, or holier than thou. Jesus stands opposed to sin because sin hurts people. And so we should stand opposed to things that hurt people So back to my question from earlier, what kind of things made Jesus mad? Or to put it another way, what kind of things did Jesus consider sinful? Well, first, I want to tell you what didn't make Jesus mad. Jesus didn't get mad when people considered unclean or unworthy wanted to hang out with him. That didn't make him mad. In fact, he spent so much time partying with people on the margins, he got accused of being a drunk and a glutton by the religious leaders of the time. Jesus didn't get mad when people were asking questions or doubting their faith. He encouraged people to deconstruct harmful beliefs and help them reconstruct loving, truthful ones. Jesus didn't even get mad when people interrupted his meals or his teachings, which happened quite often if you read the gospel accounts. He was always so quick to stop whatever he was doing to help someone in need, to answer a question, to have a conversation. These are all things that religious people usually get mad about, but they seem to have the opposite effect on Jesus. He doesn't get mad about them. He actually seems to like them. But what made Jesus mad? Jesus got mad when people used power, privilege, and religion to hurt people rather than help them. Jesus got mad when people used power, privilege, and religion to hurt people rather than help them to oppress people rather than liberate them, to enrich themselves rather than support others. That's what made Jesus mad. And this seems to be the sin that Jesus is most angered by throughout the gospel accounts and most committed to fighting against. In fact, Jesus is often quite harsh with people who use power, privilege, and religion in cruel and selfish ways. I'm going to show you some examples from Scripture. In John 8... There's a woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus to be stoned by a group of men. What does Jesus do? Who is he harsh with? The woman or the crowd trying to use religion to hurt her? Let's see. John 8, 7. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus had every opportunity there to be harsh with the woman. 
But he wasn't. He was harsh with the crowd that was trying to use religion to hurt her. Another example, Luke 13, Jesus is confronted by religious leaders for healing a paralyzed woman on the Sabbath day. Now, who is he harsh with? The woman not properly observing the Sabbath or the religious leaders? Let's look, Luke 13. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord Jesus answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus wasn't harsh with the person breaking a religious rule to try to get some help. He was harsh with the people condemning her. Let's look again. Mark 10. Jesus is interrupted by a group of kids being brought to him while he teaches. So his disciples try to take the kids away, shush them down, move them out. Who is Jesus harsh with? Let's see, Mark 10, 13 and 14. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was mad. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who did he get upset with? The kids, the parents, interrupting this really important teaching time so that they could get some help, so they could receive a blessing, or the people trying to prevent the kids from coming? One more, Luke 7. A religious leader named Simon invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. And during the dinner meal, a woman with a bad reputation in town shows up. And she doesn't just show up. She doesn't just hang out on the outskirts of the meal. She approaches Jesus. She washes his feet with her tears and her hair. And then she pours out a jar of perfume on him. Watching it all unfold, the religious leader says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So who is Jesus harsh with in this story? Let's look. Luke 7, 44. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. It happens again in Luke 15 when the tax collectors and prostitutes accuse, uh, or the tax collectors and prostitutes are eating with Jesus and the religious leaders get mad. Again in Matthew 21 when some religious leaders are extorting money from the temple and Jesus actually flips over tables that day. Again in Luke 16 when a poor man interrupts a rich man's dinner just trying to get a little bit of food and the rich man ignores him. It happens again in Mark 12 when the religious leaders ridicule a poor woman for only giving pennies to the church. Jesus rebukes them. He is harsh with them. It happened eight different times when Jesus broke Sabbath laws to help or heal people. Over and over, I could go on and on. Jesus got mad quite a bit. He called out sin quite a lot. 
But tragically in the church, we often seem so focused on calling out this subjective, moralistic sins that Jesus doesn't seem concerned about at all, rather than fighting against the sins that made him really mad. Like injustice, oppression, and cruelty, and exclusion. In fact, Jesus actually rebukes those who are obsessed with policing morality. Here's what Jesus had to say to folks like that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That is how Jesus felt about people who are all about calling out moralism, who are all about holding people to some impossible, made-up standard, instead of actually pushing back on the sins that really hurt people. That's how he felt about it. When people use power, privilege, religion to hurt folks rather than help them, Jesus gets angry. When people elevate moralism and minimize justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Jesus calls it sin. When people are more concerned about how they look on the outside, how they present to other people than what's going on in their hearts, Jesus calls them out. When people are more concerned with helping themselves rather than helping others, Jesus gets mad. And when Jesus gets mad and calls something sin, we should sit up and pay attention. But then what? Once we are able to kind of properly understand what sin really is and why Jesus is so upset by it, what do we do? Well, let me tell you what we don't do. We don't assume sin like this is exclusively out there. We don't preclude ourselves from the list of people needing to repent and to change our ways and our minds. I want to tell you, for me personally, everything changed when I realized Jesus getting angry at sin doesn't mean my focus should exclusively be on other people's sins. There have been times in my life where I have used Jesus' harshness as an excuse to be harsh with others. But when I began to look, honestly look, at the type of people that Jesus called out, it wasn't just the kind of people I disagree with. It was me, too. It was me, too. Jesus' condemnation of sin isn't primarily a window through which we see the sins of others. It is a mirror by which we see and confront our own sin. I'm going to say that again. That's important. Jesus' condemnation of sin is not primarily a window through which we see the sins of others. It's not all out there. It is a mirror by which we are meant to introspect and examine our own lives, our own complicity in these things. 
I love how Richard Rohr talks about this subject. He says this, resurrected people prayerfully bear witness against injustice and evil, but also agree compassionately to hold their own complicit, complicity in that same evil. It is not over there. It is here. It is, not, it is our problem, not theirs. We have all been there at different times. I know I've been there. We're actually energized by having an enemy, someone to hate, because it takes away the inner shame and relieves the inner anxiety. It gives us, strangely enough, a very false sense of control and superiority because we've spotted the evil and thank God it's over there. <laughs> as long as they are the problem, we can keep our focus on changing them, correcting them, expelling them as the contaminating element, and then we can sit in a reasonably comfortable position. But... It's a position that the saints called Pax Pernicosia. I think I was close. I don't know. That was cool. <laughs> a dangerous and false peace. It feels like peace, but it's not a true peace. It is the peace of avoidance, denial, and projection. You see, always pointing out the sin in others and never dealing with our own sin is false peace. It's pseudo-shalom, and it's actually in direct opposition to the healing and the wholeness and the fullness of life that God desires to bring us and all people. The problem of othering people and, and never dealing with our own sin, it's not anything new. In fact, Jesus talked about it quite a bit, including this parable I want to show you right now, Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> this is such a great story. Jesus was such a boss. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, calling out injustice, fighting against oppression is good and it's right and it's Christ-like. We talk about that all the time here at Restore. We are very passionate about it. It is so important. But we must push back against the temptation to believe that everything wrong in our world is out there. That this kind of sin only exists in other people and not in us. Because part of stepping into the healing and wholeness and fullness of life that Jesus desires is humbly assessing where we've given in to sin in our own lives. We must honestly ask ourselves where we have chosen whatever privilege we have to help ourselves at the expense of others. We must ask where we have used whatever power we have to try to control people instead of setting them free. Where we have used and abused people where we have excluded and exploited people, where we have helped ourselves at the expense of helping others, and where we have failed to sacrificially love our neighbor 
the way that Jesus has loved us. And yes, Jesus offers forgiveness from all this sin, the sin that's in me, the sin that's in you, but he also shows us a new way of living in the world that builds up shalom instead of breaking it down. And listen, I know, I know, sometimes it's really hard to know if you're doing a good job, right? That's one of the main questions I get when I'm having coffee and lunch with people. How do I know? What am I supposed to do? Like, what's the checklist, you know? I, we grew up with the checklist, right? The church gave us the big, long checklist, and it didn't work, did it? So what now? Well, I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. I talked about this back in October during the sermon about what it means to be holy. But Jesus, he told us what a life marked by trusting him and cultivating shalom looks like. John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in them will bear much, what? Fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, this message is consistent throughout Jesus' life and teaching. Matthew 7, he says, you recognize them by their what? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good what? (laughs) What is this fruit? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. Scripture says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's the thing. How do we know if we are fighting against sin and promoting shalom? The answer is simple. Are we bearing fruit. Or to put it another way, we can ask ourselves this. Does this belief or behavior lead to more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in me and in the world? If the answer is no, my friends, I do not think that the Holy Spirit is in it. I don't. If the answer is yes, I think Jesus is doing something. I think he's there. I think he's working. And maybe it shows up in the weirdest and oddest places. Maybe it shows up in the places where a church or a pastor you went to told you it's not allowed to show up. But it shows up anyway. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. That's what Paul says. This is the work of Christ. And that is the work of Christ's people, of us. This means there are many things that are neutral and can be used for either sinful or shalom-filled purposes. I'm going to consider something like alcohol for a second. In excess, right, it can fuel abuse and violence But in moderation, it can enhance a dinner party or even be used as medicine. For some people, drinking alcohol is not an issue. And for others, they avoid it completely. That's because they have an issue with it or genetics or something like that, right? In the churches I grew up in, it was black and white. Alcohol was always sinful. But that's not the reality, is it? In truth, alcohol is neutral. The question is, does the way I'm using alcohol lead to more fruit of the Spirit in me and in the world? Does the way I'm engaging with this thing lead to more fruit of the Spirit in me and in the world? I've been talking to a friend and church member here at Restore named Sarah about this for a few weeks. 
we've been having these great conversations, and she sent me a Facebook message the other day, and she put it so well. She said, the fruit of our actions is a better indicator of sin or righteousness than just the actions themselves. You have to ask, what's the fruit of this? When we are fighting against sin, we must use the fruit of the Spirit as our guide. And if we do, we will start to see beautiful things happen in our lives and in our communities. And I want to end by telling you a story about what it can look like when we begin to experience healing and wholeness by fighting against sin in our lives. I've talked a lot about this guy, Father Greg Boyle, up here. Huge influence on me, incredible Jesuit priest. Um, he has Homeboy Industries in L.A., um, which helps uh, previously incarcerated people and gang members um, get jobs and come back into society. Just incredible, incredible work. You should read. He's got three incredible books. This is his latest one. It's called The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Um, his first book, Tattoos on the Heart, a New York Times bestseller. Could not recommend these highly enough. Just incredible. So throughout these books... Father Greg tells stories, stories about his interactions with uh, previous gang members and other people in the community and things like that. And one story that I think exemplifies what we're talking about this morning, of what it can look like when we actually take this step and push back against the sin in our lives, is the story of a guy named Dino. And here's what it says. I'm just going to read it to you. Time passes, and you don't hear from people, and then you do. Dino calls me at 3 o'clock in the morning. My heart dives. This is not like him. He's sobbing. I always ask if the homies have been drinking. It situates what he'll say to me and how much credence I should give it. But Dino is as sober as ever. When there is enough subsidizing in his tears, I ask him, why are you crying, Dino? He said, well, you know how I just got out of prison and, and you hired me right away? Yeah. And you know how I worked alongside my worst enemies in the world and then they became my brothers? Yeah, Dino. And you know how I, I worked on myself, finally on myself at Homeboy Industries? Yeah. And you know how grateful I am for Homeboy and this other job you guys got me, and now I have a, a house and my wife and my boys and how, how I love my life. Father Greg says, Dino, my son, for life, why are you crying? Dino says, because tonight, for the first time in my life, I feel this pain for all the hurt that I've caused. Father Greg says, my son, you've arrived. Congratulations. You've done the really hard work, and you can choose joy now. It's right around the corner. See, when we begin to take our own stuff seriously, we fight against sin and oppression in our lives and in our world, when we choose to follow the way of Jesus Joy and shalom and fullness of life are right around the corner. But we can't skip over this step. We can't just push it all out there. Because we've got our own stuff too. I've got my own stuff too. We've got to be honest about it. But I'm telling you that if we are, God's healing and wholeness They've always been available to us. We can just reach out and grab a hold of it. So let's do that together. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your words from Scripture, for Jesus, <laughs> for beautiful and incredible and complex Jesus 
who turned the other cheek and flipped over the table. And I pray that we would take very seriously these instances of what made Jesus mad, what made God in the flesh angry. God, show us not just where all the issues are out there, but where we struggle, where we have not stepped forward into the way of Jesus and and loved people sacrificially and wholly, where we've hurt instead of helped, we've enhanced our own interests at the exclusion of others. God, help us to be humble and introspective. Show us these things. We want to follow you. We want to see shalom, not vandalized, but restored, beautifully restored in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world. Make it so, Jesus, and use us to do it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.